Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, I am talking to two novelists about one book. George Orwell's Animal Farm. I'm speaking with John Lanchester and Adam Biles, who's written his own update of Animal Farm called Beasts of England. And we're going to be reflecting on how and why this political allegory, above all others, is the one that's lasted. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, where you can read, among many other brilliant essayists, John Lanchester. And if you subscribe, you get full access to the entire LRB archive. Subscribe at a special rate for past, present, future listeners just by going to lrb.me slash ppf and get your first three months for just £1 an issue. That's lrb.me slash ppf. I think one thing that most people have in common when it comes to this book, Animal Farm, is that they probably read it as children. I mean, I don't know if that's true of both of you, but it's a book that's still widely read in schools. John, if I start with you, do you, do you remember? Did you first read it as a child? I remember it very vividly because of the context. I was I was going from A to B and stayed overnight with not really a friend of the family, someone we hardly knew who was just sort of putting me up. And I was 11, stayed overnight in London. And we watched some some movie, which I now can't remember. And she stepped out of the room at some point, came back in and said, what happened? And I was describing it. And I said, just said, blah, 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 and from the adjacent building. And I just noticed her giving me a funny look when I said adjacent. said, you're quite interested in language, aren't you? I'm going to give you a book. And so she gave me a book, which I then read, I think, you know, like the second half of the journey by train. And it was Animal Farm, which is a nice gesture at the time. But actually, in retrospect, strikes me as extremely bizarre because the likelihood of an 11 year old grasping that it's a satire on Trotsky v Stalin and the you know appropriation of the Russian communist revolution it seems to be quite short for an 11 year old so <laughs> it was just purely as a fable that I, I read it and I never quite forgotten that and and whether that was a sort of genius part of indoctrination on her part that I would then reread it in later life and have this subsequent revelation or where whether it was just you know someone who doesn't have kids who hasn't got a clue the kind of thing that children should or would read but yeah I totally and incredibly vividly remember it as purely the first time I read it purely a story about you know pigs. Uh, Adam similar or different? Um, similar, I think. I mean, I don't have the uh, rather picturesque uh, anecdote that John has, but I definitely did, definitely read it at school. I think I've been trying to piece this together recently, and I think it was around the same time, but before we studied the Russian Revolution in history, so at the age of about 14 or 15. And I think I had a very similar reaction to John. Oh, in fact, funnily enough, the other day I was talking with the, the novelist Rob Doyle, and he reminded me of the bit in Martin Amos's Money, where John Self is reading Animal Farm and, you know, saying, oh, it's quite a page turner. It's quite a great, great book. And then a few hundred pages later, he he actually realised, oh, someone tells him it's an allegory for the Russian Revolution. And he had no idea. He just thought it was a book about uh, unusually intelligent pigs. And I think more, my reaction was more or less, more or less the same, or at least knowing about the Russian Revolution didn't in any way, or not knowing about it, didn't in any way hamper my enjoyment or appreciation of the book. So I just want to read you a, a little passage that Con Tobin wrote in the LRB mm -hmm. uh, on this theme. Uh, so Con Tobin wrote, another novelist, he wrote, from an early age, I have missed the point of things. I noticed this first when the entire class at school seemed to understand that Animal Farm was about something other than animals. I alone sat there believing otherwise. I simply couldn't see who or what the book was about, if not about farm animals. I had enjoyed it for that. 
Now the teacher and every other boy seemed to think that it was really about Stalin or communism or something. I looked at it again, but I still couldn't work it out. I mean, he may be protesting a bit too much there, but I mean, what's unusual about that is, so a lot of people read it first time and and it's a book about animals, but then someone says to them, no, actually, even as a schoolboy, it's a political allegory. And then so some of the pieces fall into place. The implication here is that for him, couldn't see it. My memory of it, like you, Adam, is that it came in the context of a teacher saying, you mm-hmm. should read this book because it is an allegory about the Russian Revolution. And at the time thinking, I'm not sure I get the references, mm-hmm. but I can kind of see how that might be what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. John, when did when did the penny drop then, if, if as a child you didn't get it? Is it a book that you reread many years later? I or? think at university, I think. I think I um, studied Orwell at some point. And by that point, you know, had also done, you know, done in quotes, the Russian Revolution. You know, obviously, the thing that strikes you once you know a bit about the revolution is the the level of detail of the, you know, the mapping of the, the mapping of the animals onto the historical figures. It really is remarkable, the kind of level of precision that he gets into that, given that it also works as a story. And that's in a way the magic trick of the book, that the, the one-to-one correspondence you know, that he manages to achieve doesn't actually undermine the completely satisfying on its own terms, you know, watership down like story about animals. And not just the characters, but the events as well, because you have the electrification of the Soviet Union and you have Mm. the five-year plans and you have the Nazi-Soviet pact. I mean, as it were, it does move through... All and, of the the, sh- and the show trials. And, know, the sh- and, the, and the show trials as that well. I think rereading at this time, um, you know, different things hit you at different times. But I was really struck by the, the horror of the thing where the pigs are, turn themselves in for treason and then the other animals too. Um, I mean, that's sort of freshly, freshly shocking and appalling. The bit that I was shocked by rereading it just this week was when Napoleon, the, the Stalin-like pig, and Snowball, the, the Trotsky-like pig, are having their great debate about the windmill in front of the other animals. And the Stalin pig is not particularly eloquent and is brutish and is going to lose the argument. But at a certain point, it becomes clear that he doesn't care whether he loses the argument. So you get this sort of chilling bit where he's just sitting there smiling while Trotsky is persuading the other animals to the point where the other animals are going to vote for Trotsky. And you realise that Stalin has already decided yeah. what's going to happen. And I found just that bit, the description of the acceptance that the argument is lost, but it's no longer about winning the argument. It's about who has the dogs on their side. Mm-hmm. Terrifying, actually, in a sort of almost childlike terror. It just sent this chill through me. I think one of the um, things, with referring back to what John said about the specificity of it, the historical specificity, not undermining the the artistic side or the, the allegorical side of it, I actually would maybe go further and say that it, it complements the allegorical side of it. I think part of the danger, um, if you are trying to allegorize or sat- satirize real events, is to try and be too general, to try and avoid your, your readers being able to, to map one character onto another character or one event onto another event. It's kind of like that old rule of like, if you try and write something that appeals to everybody, it ends up appealing to nobody. I think one of the underlying elements of genius to Animal Farm is that Orwell saw this, actually. He saw that he could map it very precisely onto the events in the Soviet Union and still achieve his um, his artistic purpose. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Adam. I think in, in the term of modern language of modern storytelling or, or show business, it's sort of beat by beat. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly clever the way he sort of... I always wonder if there's a bit of paper where he has the events and then side by side, beat by beat, as you say, electrification, invasion of Soviet Union show trials and then works backwards to you know how that would work with the animals one thing i found interesting that he wrote in the um i think it's a preface to the ukrainian edition of animal farm about the ending and i think it's it's interesting because the ending in in one sense is one of the most stark pieces of allegory in the book when you know the the animals look from pig to man and man to pig and can't tell which is which and he actually said in this introduction that he felt that people had misunderstood his intention with it. Like this for him was based directly on the Tehran conference. And in fact, this he wanted to show this kind of element of discord rather than an element of coming together. And I just find it fascinating that he would take this this real situation, try and transcribe it almost precisely into the book and in some way 
the scene would transcend these events and find a, a meaning which even he didn't uh, he didn't intend. So I think this is the point where I should introduce another way of reading this book, which is being widely discussed at the moment because it comes out of another very recent account, which is Anna Funder's book Wifedom, which is about Eileen O'Shaughnessy, Orwell's wife, and the ways in which she's been written out of history, particularly how Orwell's biographers use this sort of euphemistic language to basically freeze her out of the story and freeze out the ways in which Orwell mistreated her. But at the heart of Anna Funder's account is a description of the process by which Animal Farm was written. And she says that it was clear that Orwell wanted to write a satire or an attack on particularly British intellectuals who had kind of fallen for the whole Stalin thing in the context of the war in which we were ostensibly on the same side. And she persuaded him that the way to do it was in a fable, or as it was called mm -hmm. in its original subtitle, a fairy story. Mm -hmm. And then they worked through it together, night by night, he presumably coming up with these, as John says, almost his beat by beat analogies. And together, they worked out the way to make the story cohere in its own right. And they had a lot of difficulty publishing it because British publishers didn't want this account of Stalin Soviet Union at a time when the Soviets were our allies. But apparently also at the time, people who knew Orwell well were struck by the ways in which this book was different from all his previous writing because it was more human, though it was about animals, mm. and less, it had less of him in it. And it is, I think, true that his previous writing, including his previous novels, are quite dominated by his particular personality type as a writer, quite acerbic, also sometimes quite arch. And this book has a clarity that may well not be entirely his. Mm-hmm. I think we need to recognise that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I find, I find it interesting just as, as, a, as a point of historical context. For me, the, in one sense, the book is discreet. Like, it's not honestly particularly important to me when considering the, the book as a work of art, whether it was written by George Orwell, by Eileen O'Shaughnessy, or, or written together. I do think from a point of view of, understand, of biographical context and understanding, understanding the man, understanding his legacy, understanding his life, it can only only enrich our understanding a little bit like with I believe sort of more and more scholarship is showing that uh, J.S. Mill and Harriet Weaver wrote On Liberty together. For me, that just sort of this sort of opens out a whole new perspective on the book itself. And yet, I don't think as a work of art, it, you know, finding out that Orwell wrote it or, or Eileen wrote it, it doesn't have a huge impact on, or certainly an impact on the power of the book or certainly on the, um, the allegory or the, the moral of it. Yeah, I agree with that. I haven't read Anna Funder's book, I should say. Um, I'm enough of the death of the author person to think that the text is primary. And I can well imagine it as a kind of collaboration and discussion. I make two points about that, though. Firstly, there was no such person as George Orwell. Mm -hmm. I mean, that identity was also a construct. Um, I was once at, um, my wife Miranda Carter once won the Orwell Prize for her, her first book, A Biography of Anthony Blunt. And as a result of that, I was her plus one at the dinner. And rather wonderfully, I sat next to one of Orwell's nieces, or as as she put it, Eric's nieces. It was really, really interesting, kind of thrilling, actually, talking to someone who just very, very straightforwardly called him Eric. Mm -hmm. Eric this, Eric that. And it did very vividly bring home the extent to which Orwell was a, a constructed identity, uh, a kind of fiction in and of himself. And I think, you know, by the way, footnote to that, it's quite interesting that his second wife chose to be Orwell because he, he was Eric Blair. And it's interesting that she sort of doubled down on Orwell, the constructed identity, as a, as a way, I think, of making sure that, you know, brand Orwell. I don't mean that in a demeaning way. I mean, the books were the most important thing. That's certainly what Orwell would have thought, but that Sonia was really committed to that, to Orwell's posthumous success, posthumous identity. But, you know, the idea of Orwell as a construct does allow some room for the a blurriness around the authorship, if it's a collaboration, so on. Well, you know, mm -hmm. fair enough. The other thing I would say, though, to your point, you're completely right, David. It isn't really like the slightly, the button-down, gloomy, grey nature of Orwell's fiction, but it is rather like the tone of the essays. The essays mm -hmm. are much more direct, much more personal. They're warmer. 
and they wouldn't exactly say they're looser, but you use the word human, and they are sort of more human. And so there is, I think, a continuity of tone, less with his other fiction, but but with the persona that's present in his in his essay writing. And the deep irony here is that the most human of his fictions is the book about animals. And clearly part of the genius, and whether it was his or Eileen O'Shaughnessy's genius, was to think that the way to communicate what he wanted to communicate was in a story about animals in which the humans, and rereading it this time, the humans reminded me of Roald Dahl characters. They, you know, the, the farmers feel like, and maybe Roald Dahl got it from Animal Farm. They have that kind of, I can't remember what they're called, the Roald Dahl characters, but the kind of bogguses of Roald Dahl's world. The humans are inhuman. And the animals are deeply human. And I'm guessing that is a big part of why it has endured, because there is a universal human response to the anthropomorphizing of, of animal life. That must be part of its extraordinary lasting appeal. I think so. I think it also speaks to um, our literary education generally. I was in a bit of a strange situation when I wrote Beasts of England because it was during the lockdown and also my daughter had been born a few uh, a few months previously, um, my first child. And it was only then that I realised quite how much of the early reading takes place in the farmyard, actually. And, you know, it's it's such a, a formative experience. You know, it's books about animals, it's books about noises. It makes me think of the um, the opening sentences as well to uh, Joyce's portrait of the artist about the, the moo cow coming down the road. Like, I think there is definitely something which Animal Farm plays on that sends us back to um, these kind of early formative literary experiences and also moral experiences, because I think probably Aesop's fables for for many of us were the, the first allegories we encountered and and the first time we saw sort of, I guess, moral lessons being given in, in fiction. I think that's one of the, that kind of animal, the immediacy of the animals as types is very effective at making it come across. You sort of get Boxer's character very, very thoroughly through the hoarseness, the kind of cunning of the, the pigs, the stupidity of the sheep. It's a very, very effective shortcut because the other thing, it's a very short book. You know, he achieves these effects in an extraordinary, concise way. And the beauty of the setup, I, I noticed for the first time this time, is you just get a, a human paragraph at the beginning when the you know the farmer goes to bed drunk and leaves the thing open, and it, it's beautifully done. Yeah, as well, you know, we're introduced to our fellow species first, and then it seamlessly goes into this thing of fantasy with the animals. But there's something about the tonal control he has. You don't. There's no, there isn't even a speed bump from the, you know, the realism of the drunk farmer to, you know, major convening a meeting of all the other animals and talking about his, you know, vision of a new Jerusalem where they don't have to work. I mean, it's an, it's an extraordinary effect. I was struck by that as well. When Major starts talking, within a sentence, you realise you're not in the world you thought you were in. So you thought you were, this was going to be an allegory using animals in which their animal qualities are important. So they are emblematically, for all the reasons... John said, and I think everyone relates to Boxer, right? I mean, Boxer is the, and the death of Boxer is unbearable. But when the major starts talking, he starts talking political philosophy. And suddenly in a sentence, you realise, oh, it's not what I thought it was. It's extraordinary. Although I would say on that subject of animals represented certain human types, I think it Orwell treads a very fine line and treads it for the most part very well, uh, because it's human types, but it's also social classes or social positions. And one of my hesitations when returning to the book in recent years was the character of Boxer as both being, you know, a certain a certain type, a certain sort of maybe, maybe sort of credulous, perhaps a little bit naive, but hardworking type. And also the fact he, he does kind of stand in for the the working classes. It's often struck me as perhaps one of Orwell's weak points is his tendency to sometimes over-romanticise the working classes. I mean, I think you see it in the the opening pages, particularly of Down and Out in Paris and London, where, and perhaps that has to do with the sort of exoticism of, of French poverty, perhaps, to him, where um, I think he's, he's so keen to be a champion of the working class. And I think there's a little tendency to to romanticise them. And I think the danger of that, and I think one of the things, one of the dangers it presents, particularly contemporary novelists working on, on allegories in, involving animals or involving human types, is that I don't think we accept that so much anymore. I think because romanticising will inherently decomplexify uh, somebody and so perhaps dehumanise. And I think Orwell was aware of this. And I think in his essays, we do see him 
reckoning a little bit with with this but that was that was one of my my hesitations and i say i think for the most part he pulls it off pretty well but coming back to particularly to boxer and seeing him being yeah quite credulous and and hard working and everything like that and then being and then being dispatched like it, it was it was something that left me a little bit dubious about that part of the book and how well how well that worked i think there is something i agree i think there is something sneaky and subtle about orwell's use of the animal parallels to human types as as you mentioned david it was it was very difficult getting the book published it's turned down by golantz who was the you know absolute core left-wing publisher orwell's regular publisher turned down out of hand just because it was so explosive i mean that's the thing it's easy to forget now is just how inflammatory it was at the point when we were all being, the whole UK was being encouraged to, you know, cheer for Uncle Joe and uh, we were allies and there was this very kind of benign stereotyped image of Stalin. And, you know, always it was incredibly polemical, inflammatory, right on the nose, angry, topical book. And for Gollant to turn it down, he shopped it around, he sent it to Faber, sent it to T.S. Eliot. And uh, Eliot wrote this wonderfully sort of in his Eliotic way, you know, sort of intelligent and evil rejection letter with this with astonishing sentences. We have no conviction that this is the right point of view from which to criticise the political situation at the present time. You'd have thought, you know, you had the nerve, this from this from a guy who wrote a letter praising the Daily Mail when Mussolini got elected for, quote, its salutary attitude to fascismo, right? That's where Eliot was coming from initially politically. And going from that to turning down or for, for, for criticise the political situation. I mean, talk about having the nerve of a thousand devils. But <laughs> he, he does then go on Eliot in his feline way. He, he, he says, um, he talks about, you know, those who criticise Russian tendencies from the point of view of pure communism and those who, who are alarmed about the future of small nations. And then, Elliot, this is the sneaky bit. And after all, your pigs are far more intelligent than the other animals, and therefore the best qualified to run the farm. <laughs> there couldn't have been an animal farm at all without them. So that what was needed, <laughs> someone might argue, was not more communism, but more public-spirited pigs. <laughs> Blood, bloody hell. I mean, it's, absolutely, you know, it's an absolute, TS, absolute banger from, from the great man there. But, um, but there is a, a really sneaky, subtle point in that, that because Orwell turns, uses the animals as types, that actually you have a kind of natural tendency for the animals to behave in a certain way. The pigs are going to be more intelligent. The horses are going to be harder working. The sheep are going to be slightly idiotic. And you run the, a risk of doing something that a brilliant book, but also a flawed book, there's Art Spiegelman's Mouse, which is about the Holocaust. Incredibly successful, very, very, very powerful graphic novel about the Holocaust. But the Nazis are cats and the Jews are mice. Cats do hunt mice. It's, it's, not, it's not moral. It's not an ethical crisis. It's not an ethical tragedy. It's just what cats and mice do. And there's a, a subtle thing below the surface of Animal Farm that actually is a little bit in tension with the political message that actually these things are all behaving according to their nature, which is one of the reasons it's so satisfying as an animal fable, because you completely believe that that is what would happen. And at the same time, there is a kind of, there is a, a sort of small C conservative countercurrent to what the story is actually ostensibly saying, I think. And John, I noticed you described T.S. Eliot there as feline. Uh, yep. the, the great, well, he, the great he, he would have taken that as a compliment. He would, the, the, the cat writer. This is a slightly tangential point, but it, it connects to these kind of animal types, which I realised that, in fact, Orwell, he navigates a little bit in the book, but doesn't really go too much, um, doesn't really confront face on, is the the fact that different animals, different farm animals live for different lengths of time. And it was something that, that really struck me as a sort of something to be reckoned with and also in a way perhaps something to be avoided was the fact that uh, the events in a year to a pig, to a donkey, to a mouse, to a cat are going to be different depending on depending on that animal's lifespan. And so there, there is a moment in Animal Farm when he does talk about the sort of the retirement ages of the different animals. And he does give each animal just a little, a few years different depending on their species. But I think that's the only moment where he really even approaches perhaps one of the one of the fault lines in writing a political allegory, particularly one that takes place over several years, about animals, is that 
you know, if we're going to look at it from, uh, you know, really anthropomorphize or really project a kind of rationality onto onto each of the different animals, their experience of the events will be radically impacted by, you know, whether they live for a year and a half or whether they live for 30 years. And another thing that would radically impact it, I mean, it's interesting as a counterfactual to say something like chicken run, where they're all the same species. If it was just one kind of animal, Oddly enough, it would become much more psychological. It would become about different, effectively about different types of people. He avoids that by stratifying, and then it would be, in a sense, about the problem of evil or the problem of malignity or power in a sort of institutional way, in a different sense. But by stratifying the classes into different types of animals, he, he swerves that one. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> and yeah, as as Adam says, Boxer particularly represents credulity. And it does have that universal theme in it. It mm -hmm. is no question part of the reason it's endured. It's about the ways in which all of us under these kinds of conditions, and you know, Adam, your version of it touches on these themes too, are capable of being deceived. Mm -hmm. I was reading um, Orwell on Swift. And so Orwell writes about some of the things we've been talking about here when he writes about Gulliver's Travels. And he, in that essay on Swift, he addresses the question of how can I, on the one hand, be so politically far removed from Swift, whom he describes as a Tory anarchist, and how can I find so much of what he writes repellent in many ways? And yet he says, this is one of the six books, if the world was destroyed, I would wish to be preserved. And he writes about the different levels at which it works. So similarly to Animal Farm, Gulliver's Travels has some reference points that mean nothing to people now to do with Walpole and Whiggism in the 18th century and the wars with France and the role of the Dutch. It's a story that children can read, partly because it's about animals, but also it's about big people and little people, that universal theme. Everyone can understand the appeal of thinking about what it would be like to be very, very tall or very, very small. And then Orwell says in his essay on Swift, the bit that's politically timeless is the bit which is a sort of foreseeing of the police state, the bit where Swift is is satirizing, but also attacking the possibility of a politics that tries to second guess what people are thinking. And that's true of Animal Farm too, I think, that part of its universal timeless quality is there is something in politics about power and institutions and deception and self-deception, which does transcend the Stalinist context. Well, that's at least how I read it. And I think uh, the use of language as well. Um, we were talking about our first, our first experience with Animal Farm. And that's the thing I remember most distinctly from the first reading was each of the moments when the sacred mottos or the rules for animalism were changed. So when it became two legs good, four legs better, or no animal shall sleep in a bed with sheets. And I just remember feeling really quite viscerally that the the violence being done to to the language at those moments. And I guess I know, I mean, I suppose this is a current which runs through pretty much everything Orwell wrote, particularly around that time, is this connection between the decay and the decline or the, and the intentional manipulation of language and the political and economic effects it can have. I think that's one of the prophetic things in the book, that thing about the, the power of those slogans, the power of the very simple framing. I think one, it goes in both directions, though, it's because it's often spoken of as prophetic, as, as 1984 is too. But I think that really hit me this time was the extent to which it's it looks backwards as well, you know, that if you think about what happened when he was wrote, writing it late 43, early 44, you know, everything's about Uncle Joe, the war's still, you know, right in one of its darkest points. 
And what he does is he sets out to reframe what's happened. A lot of it's a reframing of the past. And although we talk in terms of allegory, prophecy, fable, things like that, it's it's a really unusual piece for setting out to actually change people's mind about what has already happened. The Russian Revolution isn't what you're being told happened, it was this other thing. And it's astonishingly powerful. This time I found myself wondering the extent to which Orwell's um, experiences when he was close to power as an um, officer in the colonial service and also when he had his dealings with the BBC had made him think about that, the extent to which you gain power by framing things. This is an extraordinarily powerful and, you know, let's face it, you know, incredibly effective reframing of, of the Soviet revolution. It's a, we look at the ways in which it looks forward, but actually it's incredibly powerful about the way it looked back. Do you think, John, when you talk about that, that that's what Orwell might have been referring to, that reframing as his political purpose? Because that was a quote of his from, I think it's from Why I Write, where he talks about Animal Farm being his first attempt to fuse political purpose and artistic purpose. And the the idea of political purpose, I think, for a novel and as novelists, I think we all have a slightly depressing sense of how little political impact um, a novel can have. It, it just struck me I wasn't entirely sure what Orwell's political purpose was with this book, but that possibility of the reframing does does seem to make sense. I think he was. I think that's a, a really good point. I mean, I think it's. I think Anthony Pohl, who was a slightly unlikely friend of Orwell's, given that they were so unlike politically, but said that Orwell, he always had to convince himself that there was a political thing to do before writing a novel, that he, he, he was a sort of aesthetically minded person who needed political alibi, needed a political excuse in order to let the other things out, let his imagination loose. And I think, and it came out in odd ways, by the way, one of the things I always liked is that at one point he convinced himself that the semicolon was obsolete. He, he wrote The Clergyman's Daughter Without Semicolons. And the reason I know about it is when I was a student, we had some lectures from a man called Peter Davidson, who was Orwell's editor. And that created a huge headache because the modern theory of how you edit is a thing called the theory of the copy text, which is you pick the version of the text that the author signed off on and you base your editing on that. But the problem was that Orwell did sign off on the proofs of The Clergyman's Daughter, but it at the point when he explicitly said he didn't want semicolons, but it has semicolons in it. There are two semicolons slipped in by mistake, which created a problem for Davison. Do you go with what he said, or do you go with the sacred, by modern ideology, copy text? Um, and I can't. I think he actually took them out on the basis that all had been so clear about the obsolete semicolon. But in a way, there's always a version of that in his writing. He's always got a political purpose. I, th I just think in Animal Farm, it comes through... It's the purest fusion of it, you know, that he unleashes this extraordinary imaginative, you know, freshness, really. It's still so fresh. Fresh as pain when you reread re it now. And at the same time, it's, I think, his most, his most charged and angriest and most effective political book. Do you think that part of its appeal, its lasting appeal, is because anyone reading it can understand that the stakes are so high? The context of it and what is at stake here, thinking about the Russian Revolution and its aftermath as one way that history might go. And I'm thinking here of another book, which is Timeless, which is still widely read or at least experienced in different forms. I think now mainly in musical form, The Wizard of Oz, which was a political allegory. Its author, L. Frank Baum, understood it as an allegory about the gold standard and silver coinage and the Coinage Act of 1873 and the yellow brick road is the road to, to gold and the silver shoes represent silver shoes. And no one now could care less about any of that. You could, maybe we could try and make a case that you know, gold and silver still matter in a different form in the age of fiat money or whatever. But it's just kind of, that is ancient history. And the book, I think quite soon, just broke free from its historical moor moorings. And it broke free from the context in which it made sense for its author. That is not true of Animal Farm. And I think, Adam, in your rewriting of it, right, you're, you're making, in a sense, the same point, that the political stakes are still really real for us. We can understand them in our politics too. I think that's definitely the case. Um, but I think partly because because we're very historically in one sense very distant from um, the, the Russian Revolution and all of the historical 
specific historical conditions that brought it about and and led to the events that Orwell describes. And yet at the same time, I think what makes allegories like this work are the underlying truths which, when stripped of the context, do also carry over. So in the case of The Wizard of Oz, this idea of, you know, this terrifying being uh, turning out to be sort of somebody behind a curtain sort of pulling levers, I think is something which translates to so many contexts and is, is sort of is relevant to so many situations that it continues to it continues to have relevance. I guess with Animal Farm, it's definitely the case, and I guess in recent years, and this was certainly one of the motivations for me to revisit Orwell and then to, to write my own sort of sequel to his book, was... Uh, the fact that it did become very clear that perhaps despite a certain uh, naive optimism in the, perhaps in the 90s, let's say, that sort of we were on this unstoppable uh, march to sort of a democratic world, that actually some of the forces that brought about the the Russian Revolution and brought Stalin to power were still very much there. But in addition, I think there is that sense of that underlying truth of the the manipulation of people through through language and the manipulation of politics through language and i think even if you are talking about a situation which is you know on a sort of beat by beat basis as we talked about earlier not really connected to the russian revolution those truths those uh, you know little tweaks of certain um certain phrases those little sort of sly manipulations that the politicians make I think will be recognisable to anybody in any context and in any country around the world. And I should say, I found myself writing something not long ago and using the phrase the wizard behind the curtain to describe a contemporary politician. And I suddenly realised, I think this is the third or the fourth time that I've used that phrase about different politicians. I think it started with Blair and I thought I must stop because actually I'm stripping it of all meaning, though it is it is a compelling image that has nothing to do with the gold standard and silver coinage and all the rest of it. It's about power. And at the heart of all great political allegories, so regardless of what the specifics of The Wizard of Oz, there is in that moment of revelation something that chimes with all sorts of political ways of thinking about the emptiness at the heart of power. I've stopped using it, but I became addicted to it. <laughs> I think uh, it's, it's by far the best thing in the Wizard of Oz. I, I, I think as a, I can't stand it as a story; it's completely chaotic. I think. I mean, I think the thing that really cuts through about Animal Farm. I think the reason why, you know, as with you can throw away the gold standard from the Wizard of Oz. I mean, another example of something which makes absolutely no sense and everyone, nobody cares, is the magic flute. I mean, I must have read the explanation of the allegorical stuff that three or four times. I mean, you know, in one ear, out the other. It's it's absolutely total mince, you know. I mean, it's all about the Masons and the goodies, the baddies, and, you know, it's terrible. Nobody cares. It's all gone. The thing that's different about Animal Farm, the thing that is permanently electrically alive, I think, is that at, at its core, it's about lying. It's about the power of lying, the permanent power of lying, and what you can do if you just are willing to flat out 100% tell untruths, commit to it, change your story, have complete amnesia about everything you've ever said, deploy the full resources of all the power you have behind that. I think that's never not going to be relevant. And in some ways, I'm sorry to say, it's maybe become increasingly relevant in our politics and, and depressingly not totalitarian politics, which is one of the, you know, world's focus in that book, but just flat out lies have become more and more important in just normal, previously mainstream democratic politics. It's just a, now it's become, seems to have become a standard part of the toolkit. Though Orwell was also writing about the ways in which British intellectuals were lying about Stalin. I mean, the absolute blatant fakery of the way in which Stalinism was being presented in the British press was one of the things that, and you, the, the Elliot letter was an example of that. I mean, I don't know if you'd call that letter in its feline quality a lie, but it's a, it's a long, long way from someone who is primarily concerned with the truth. Yeah, and it's um, it's disingenuous and evasive and all that. I suppose I'm not writing a retrospective justification for fellow travellers. I mean, things were slightly different in the middle of a world war, maybe. Uh, or if a character that really cut through this time for me was the donkey. I hadn't really noticed before, but the sort of cynical intellectual who's seen through everything. And I mean, just in terms of British politics, that had a sort of 
that was freshly relevant, I thought. And whom some people say is Orwell. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. I don't know if that works, actually, but it's certainly often said of it. that, And as we said at the beginning, Orwell's Eeyore-ish character is not present in the writing of this book, maybe because Eileen O'Shaughnessy stripped it out. But there he is. Yeah. There is the Eeyore-ish figure saying, I've seen it all before and I see through you all. Yeah, there Benjamin is. I think That's right. I mean, I think... Um, you know, and in that sense, Animal Farm didn't work. You know, the thing about the power of falsehoods are just as, you know, it's not like we suddenly thought, oh, let's swear off them forever. And Adam, would it be fair to say that that's the central theme in your rewriting, though, in a very much in a non-totalitarian context, in a sense, in an age of multiple, endless, overlapping sources mm -hmm. of information? Yeah, I, I think so. I think this is idea of lying and this idea of leaning into the lie, and also this idea of this capacity we have and of being able to believe in and subscribe to several different realities at once. I must admit, I think one of the, the differences between my approach and what I take to be Orwell's approach is that I think he had a very clear understanding of what he wanted to say before before embarking on the project, what his, his analysis was and what and how he wanted to present it. My approach was a little different in that I I wanted to understand what had happened in recent years. And I saw in Orwell's fable, his, in, in his allegory, potentially the toolkit for me coming to my, my own understanding. So in a slightly, I would say, slightly sort of parasitical way, I thought, what would happen if I inserted myself into his world and deployed his tools? might I come to to an understanding of what was of what was going on. And as I was writing, I think one of the understandings I came to was this idea around truth and falsehood and a shared sense of objectivity, which is perhaps um, something which, because of the, the historical context he was writing, it's not something which Orwell addressed directly, but I think has become very important politically recently, is what do you do in a society where the ground beneath your feet, the ground of objective truth, the ground of fact is not shared when when people can kind of plant themselves on sort of these shifting islands of facts and these shifting islands of truth. And I realised once I was probably about halfway, maybe even two thirds of the way into the first draft, that that was essentially the, the core of the book for me. John, so I hesitate to ask this because The Wall is a different kind of book and it's, among other things, a dystopian fiction, but is it an allegory? I mean, does the idea of allegory, it's a novel about climate change and it's about many, many other things too, including the possible ways in which a society might close itself off entirely from what lies outside. People have taken it that way. And I'm referring back to death of the author earlier, you know, in a funny way, I'm not sure it's up to me. Um, I didn't think of it as an allegory. I thought of it more as a sort of a warning or I think coming out of a specific image. It did actually come out of a dream, a recurring dream I had about someone standing on a wall and I just kept thinking about what that was and what that meant and what, what, what would have happened to the world. But a lot of people have taken it that way. Um, and walls have become, you know, I started writing it in 2016 and walls and barriers and boundaries are more definitely more of a more of a feature of the world. I mean, I, I'm wary of allegory as a writer, partly because of the, the way that you can't, I suppose, again, going back to Death of the Author, that it's difficult to control meaning, you know, and the things that you think you're saying aren't necessarily the things you end up saying. And the things that the audience takes, the readers take, aren't necessarily the things that you, you put there. And for me, there's a bit of a tension between the impulse to explore an imaginative world and lay out an imaginative world and the implicit thing about determinate meanings that you have. If you read Animal Farm and think that, well, actually, in a sense, isn't Napoleon really, you know, Trotsky? You, yeah, that, that's actually wrong. You very specifically got that wrong. And it's Boxer, but Boxer's sort of the middle class, isn't he? Because the middle class are the people who really do the hard work. <laughs> wrong, incorrect. And that's always struck me as one of the risks of, of allegory, that you can just not to put too fine a point on it, you, you know, you can cock it up or the reader can cock it up and you kind of, you've mislaid the book somewhere in the process. I think that's that's true, particularly today that, um, and that's why I think allegories with human characters are perhaps even more challenging to write than uh, allegories with, with animals because there is 
always this expectation, I think, of human complexity and of the the attempt to present something which is a sort of emotionally authentic or intellectually authentic, while also perhaps trying to transmit whatever the meaning or whatever moral you want to you want to put across. And I think I think it's very hard to do. Um, one person who does manage it in a relatively recent book is I think Colson Whitehead in the Underground Railroad, where the the characters are are very believable and very starkly drawn. And yet the the historical allegory, the political allegory, I think, is very stark and does work and does work very well. But even when writing about animals, it was a tension I felt actually that sort of, oh no, but you can't just, you know, if, if you're going to talk about the sheep, you can't just have all the sheep are stupid and all of the sheep are indistinguishable from the other. Because even if you're one step removed, people will interpret back to to human context and assume you're perhaps projecting some sort of homogeneity onto to people or onto classes. I think some of the, the most effective modern books that draw on allegory, are almost they're almost more like metaphor, because I took Underground Railroad as kind of, he commits very thoroughly to a metaphor and it, and it becomes allegorical, this thing about the railroad being a literal railroad. And another book that's like that is um, Ursula Le Guin's The Word for World is Forest. You know, very obviously a book about Vietnam, but it's through this this metaphor of a, of a people who, who live in a forest. And they, those are both works that do that thing of, you know, incredibly satisfying imaginative worlds on their own with this kind of extraordinarily other thing going on the side of direct political consequence. What, one other political allegory that I've noticed comes up a lot it, it gets I mean, like with all these things once you start looking for them you find them so this is a completely non-representative sample but I've noticed that Dostoevsky's The Devils or The Damned as it's sometimes called which is another book that you know scholars can tell you all of the very very specific 19th century Russian and other political references in that book but people cite it a lot now stripped away of all of that because it too is about the ways in which human beings can lose touch with reality, can lose their minds in a political setting. And something about that also seems to resonate in the 21st century, even though the reference points no longer work. And it's a deeply shocking and strange and just fundamentally weird book. And yet something about it cuts across the century and a half since it was written. I think it's one of the most extraordinary novels ever written, The Devils, because because Dostoevsky does draw you in, you get sucked into the world and it gets madder and madder and the characters get madder and madder and it gets more and more extreme. And you find yourself putting back to, well, Fyodor, mate, I mean, this is great, but are people in this sort of middle of nowhere, sleepy rush, are they really wanting to kind of, you know, kill God and burn down? (laughs) Oh, actually, wait a minute. No, because 30 years later, they did. That's exactly what they did try and do. And he has this extraordinary ability to just at the point at which it feels like he's spiraling, feels like he's spiraling more and more and more away from, he's getting madder and madder, basically. You suddenly realise that actually it's more and more truthful. That's actually what happened. He, I don't know anyone else quite like that, that they, they look like they're going down a vortex and actually you realise that actually they're getting closer and closer to the truth. And there you have Animal Farm and the Devils on either side of the same event. One weirdly prophetic the other as you say john looking back and that event still remains for some of this kind of fiction the the, the turning point the pivotal event and um, do, do either of you, is there another work political allegory? i was going to ask you adam if there are any other i mean do you have other favorites well there was one it's, it's a, it was a television show actually that i enjoyed and i thought was rather mercilessly cancelled uh what well, goes Armando Yanucci's Avenue 5 quite recently which I thought was building up um it got two seasons out of HBO um so this is a a space cruise liner that gets knocked off course and so is is traveling is set to I think have a dozen or 15 years journey instead of uh, instead of instead of six months the tech billionaire who owns it is on board as are of course as you get on perhaps on cruise liners like are representatives of different uh, different levels of um, or different parts of society and I think one thing that um, Amanda Unici does very well with that actually is kind of exploit the 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 weak low of the cruise ship and you know with the the infinity of space um beyond to say some very very pertinent things particularly about the political situation in Britain and the US i mean the the title itself came from trump's comment that he could shoot someone on 5th avenue and uh 
and not go to not go to prison for it. So 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 I enjoyed that, and I, I would have liked to have seen what it would have um, would have become. The other another one that came to mind was uh, High Rise by J.G. Ballard, which for me was just uh, the first time I read it again. Not probably not too long after reading Animal Farm, actually had a quite a sort of a transformative effect on my uh, on, on, on my understanding of literature. John, are there any others you want to throw into the mix? I agree with both those. Um, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that they'd stopped making Avenue, they cancelled Avenue Five. Um, I love that. There's an incredible episode in it where they, some people on the spaceship become convinced that it's all a simulation. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it starts as a comedy, but it actually goes to this. No spoilers, but it goes to this <laughs> utterly jolting, incredibly dark place where people become convinced that the idea that the idea that they're all in outer space is actually fake news, and that ends about as well as you can as you'd expect it to. Um, I haven't thought about Ballard. Yeah, lots of Ballard's books are allegorical like that. He's an absolute master of master of that. And I would say the probably the political allegory that I find myself thinking about most. I don't know why, but it resonates in so many different ways. Is Wally. I don't know why. Mm. Maybe it's the visual. It's it's that same thing of the spaceship, the ship, the high rise building, the self contained space in which you get the the structures and the hierarchies and so on. But there's something about Wally that, more than almost anything else, I find myself often thinking, "Oh, it's like that." Adam Bowles's new novel is called Beasts of England. It's out now. It comes highly recommended, particularly if you like Animal Farm. And you can get it wherever you get good books, but we always recommend getting it from an independent bookstore. Please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas, where we will tweet links, among other things, to some of John's writings in the LRB. Next week on this podcast, it's time for another episode in the history of ideas about the great essays, and we've moved to the 21st century. I'm going to be talking about David Foster Wallace writing about John McCain. Coming up on this podcast, Zadie Smith, Mary Beard, John Gray, and Leah Ippi and I are going to continue our conversation about the meaning of contemporary democracy. Please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman, and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.